I'm Chelsea. And I'm Deidre. And we're giving you a million murders. about this one's probably going to be coming out just about Christmas time I think is it mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just so mellow mm-hmm. we're like mm-hmm. yes yeah. yes so hope you all are enjoying your almost holiday time yay it's about that time what's your favorite holiday Thanksgiving or Christmas mm. listen I was just talking about this the other day with somebody. So Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas are like... Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Like I love scary stuff and spooky stuff. So I love Halloween. Me too. But then I love Thanksgiving because you're with your family Mm -hmm. and there's good food. And then Christmas, you know, Christmas is Christmas. It's family. It's gathering celebrating Mm -hmm. same thing the eating holidays and the spooky holidays so i I don't know yeah it's hard for me to pick i love christmas but i love thanksgiving too and then i really love halloween so i got i don't know i don't know i don't even know if i could rank them yeah christmas is my favorite i think i think christmas is number one I feel like Halloween and Christmas Thanksgiving is my number one, and I was about to say Thanksgiving and Halloween are like tied. I can't, I can't choose. Two. I can't choose. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, y'all. I, I definitely drew that out. That's my fault. <laughs> so you can um, email us or comment on our post, letting yeah. us know what is your favorite holiday between Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Yes. Because, I mean, I guess there's Valentine's Day and, oh, New Year's Eve is a holiday, too. I love New Year's Eve, too. But, I mean, you know, it's just whatever. (laughs) New Year, new me. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Oh, and Fourth of July. And Mm -hmm. it's like I'm just remembering bigger. I'm like. But Christmas is definitely still number one over, like, all. Yeah. I love Christmas. Yeah. And then my birthday's three days later. So, it's, it's a good time. It's a good time. It's a good, good time. Mm-hmm. La, 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 la. Oh, anyway, so. Um, right, right. <laughs> we, we're, we're here for something, so aren't we? So we are. <laughs> so I'm doing a murder case today. Okay. And I found this story on one of these websites that I go on. Mm-hmm. And look at, like, true crime documents and stuff. Well, I found this story on there. I think it's, it's the same... Our, um, same website that I got the other one that I done. Yeah. Betty. That, Betty, yeah, yeah. So, I guess I'm just going to jump, on, jump in. on in. And heads up, this will be a, a two-parter. So. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> okay. <You> ready? <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking you. Yes, yes. <clears throat> okay. So... It's titled, Everyone in Stephenville Thought They Knew Who Killed Susan Woods. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Okay. 
They found her. Okay, I'm just going to say trigger warning on this because it's... Just from the jump. From okay. The, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Just in case I forget that something's in here. And plus, right off bat, they tell you what happens. So, it says they found her naked body 36 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Her head sunk into a bathtub full of black water, hands tied behind her with a tank top. It was 1987... And in a God-fearing town like Stephenville, 70, mi- 70 miles no- southwest. <laughs> <laughs> no, southwest. Wait, you said she was, did you say she was naked with a tank top binding yeah. her? Ugh. Yeah. So, 70 miles southwest of Fort Worth, what had been done to Susan Woods was unimaginable. So, something you might expect in a fetid corner of Los Angeles or New York City. She had been a quiet, shy woman, five foot seven, with lustrous brown hair, cascading, cascading past her shoulders, and an easy smile that friends didn't see as much as they once had. Hmm. Susan was 30 years old and living alone that summer left by a bikerish husband who had fled the state waiting for her divorce to go through. She was a local girl, a little lonely, a little sad, trying hard to put her life back in order. This is sad. Yeah. When she missed her shift at the sandpaper factory two days running, a supervisor called her father Joe Atkins. Atkins knew immediately that something was wrong, Susan would never miss work without telling someone. Mm -hmm. He drove to the tiny white bungalow she rented near downtown around the corner from Central Elementary. The house was dark, the night air quiet, but for the rhythmic shrieking of cicadas. Ugh. Mm -mm. I don't like cicadas. No. On the porch, in the gloom, Atkins found that the door was unlocked. He was the one who found her. Terrible. Yeah. Like, finding your daughter like that. Ugh. No, it's awful. In the bath, off the rear bedroom. Mm. It was something no parent should ever have to see. He called the police on the living room phone and waited in the yard until they drove up. Mm. When a sergeant named Donnie Hensley arrived around nine, he hadn't been told the victim's identity. He was surprised to see Atkins, whom he knew as a volunteer at the municipal mm-hmm. golf course. Mm-hmm. Joe, what are you doing here? He asked. Donnie, they killed her, Atkins said. Killed who, Joe? They killed my daughter. Ugh. Hensley didn't press. He could tell Atkins was suffering from something like shock. The two men huddled and said a prayer before Hensley urged Atkins to go on home. His family needed to be told. At one point, Susan's best friend, Cindy Hallmark, happened to drive up with her boyfriend. Neighbors could hear her screams two blocks away. Mm. Inside, other officers were already pacing the house, taking photographs and studying the scene. Susan, the medical, the medical examiner, would later confirm had been raped and sodomized. Oh, okay. An angry red line across her throat suggested that her killer had tried to strangle her. Hensley examined the bedroom where there appeared to have been a struggle. 
Bedding was strewn everywhere. The mattress had been shoved off-center. A white electrical cord, perhaps used in the strangulation attempt, lay across the bed, plug-end on the floor. Mm. Murders were rare in Stephenville, and this was as bad as most of the officers at the house that night had even seen, or ever seen. Mm -hmm. What stayed in everyone's minds afterward wasn't so much what had been done to Susan Woods. Instead, it was a pillowcase stained with mascara. As Hensley studied it, he realized he could see the outlines of a face. Mm. It had obviously been pressed over her nose and mouth and was, in effect, Susan's death mask. I could see where her eyes had been, Hensley said. For years, I mean, all I could see was that eerie mascara. Mm. Gosh. It's intense. Yeah. In the bathroom, they found two good sets of fingerprints and palm prints, which in 1987 were of limited use because DNA analysis was still years away. Right, right. And fingerprint database databases were not yet available in Texas. Hmm. So while detectives had plenty of physical evidence, there was little they could do with the prints until they were compared with that of a specific suspect. Officers knocked on doors up and down the street. No one had even, no one had seen anything strange. So at the police department the next day, a lieutenant, lieutenant, <laughs> a lieutenant <laughs> named Ken Montby announced that no other detectives would be working the case. He would take it on alone. Hensley exchanged glances with another officer. Today, 30 years after his departure from the force, Hensley is a leathery 70-year-old retiree living in nearby Granbury. Hmm. He still has misgivings about the case, beginning with Maltby's impromptu takeover. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be a hero, he says. Hmm. Maltby, who died in 2016, investigated for two months with little progress. Then that October with Maltby, then that October when Malt, Maltby stepped aside to assume control of a narcotics unit, Hensley decided to take on the investigation in his spare time with little guidance, he says, and some surprisingly, no written reports. The case was cold, Hensley remembers. I looked, but I couldn't find no dang notes. Hmm. I didn't know what people had said to him. Hensley started from scratch, attempting to revive the case. Because Susan's remains were badly decomposed, her upper body appeared to have spent two days in the bathwater. It was unclear whether she had been smothered, strangled, or drowned, but Hensley saw that there were basically two possible scenarios. Susan had been killed either by a stranger, a crime all but unknown in Stephenville, or by someone she knew. There was no sign of forced entry, which suggested the latter. Mm -hmm. The more Hensley studied the crime scene photos, the more he suspected that Susan had known her killer. The most struck him, what most struck, struck what most struck him was the living room table. There was an open can of Coke and an ashtray containing six cigarette butts. It didn't fit. Susan wasn't a habitual smoker and she avoided caffeine oh okay one friend said she drank nothing but water 
Hmm. And the table suggested that she had hosted someone who stayed long enough to open that soda and smoke six cigarettes. Right. So, like, who's who's been up in here? Mm-hmm. They're not going to have who's the DNA. Bed? <laughs> have your boots been, been under? under? Whose heart did you steal? I wonder. Hallelujah. I wonder. Do, 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 do. I don't. Oh, <laughs> who's wow? Been, okay. Who's that? Every boots been under. Whose heart did you steal? I wonder. This time I feel the thunder, baby. I think that's the words I don't know. I don't know either. Once Hensley began interviewing Susan's friends and family, he realized there weren't many people she would have invited into her home. Her social circle had shrunk over the years, mm-hmm. a process that accelerated after her husband left. He had taken their car, an old yellow Mustang, and for months she had worked six days a week to save enough money to buy a replacement. Dang, she's been going through hustling, it. Hustling, yeah. Hustling and dealing with all that mental chaos yeah. she's got in her life. She spent Sundays, her day off, mostly doing laundry and buying groceries. She had only a handful of girlfriends and little time for dating. But there was one thing. According to notes still in the case files, a friend from work named Deborah Hardy told of a troubling call from Susan a few weeks before her death. She was real upset and she said, Debbie, I have got to talk to somebody. And I went down there and she was crying, Hardy said to investigators. She had some dark marks on her neck, hickey, looking marks hmm. and she said she didn't know how or why she let it happen she was afraid what everybody else would think susan wouldn't say much more even about who had done it her best friend cindy filled in the blanks the hickeys were from the work of a bartender in granbury jc bauman whom she'd seen a few times i said what happened Cindy told the police, and she said that J.C. had got a little fresh, a little carried away. Mm-hmm. Hensley drove to Granbury to see J.C., who admitted to the affair. After meeting Susan, when she and some work friends came to his bar, J.C. had cuddled with her on her couch for a few nights before they had sex, just the once. Susan ended it after the hickeys. J.C. seemed like a sweet guy in Hensley's estimation, and he passed a polygraph test. His prints didn't match any found at the house. Hmm. Okay. Hensley's next suspect, Cindy's boyfriend and later husband, Roy Hayes. So, Cindy's the best friend. Okay. Roy Hayes was just a hunk. Hunch. Oh, I was like, oh, okay. Roy was a big, gentle young man who often helped Susan around the house, at one point nailing the window shut when she worried about her safety. Unsurprisingly, we're all over the home. But he also played Dungeons and Dragons, which in those days, at least in a place like Stephenville, carried a whiff of Satanism. Yeah. Hensley interviewed him and found nothing suspicious, but asked him to take a polygraph test just to make sure. Which, can't trust a polygraph test. Mm-mm. 
They had administrated it at a Texas Rangers office in Waco. Donnie meets me right at the door as I come out and he says, Roy, you failed. You might as well confess, Roy recalls, and I'm like, there's no way. I didn't have nothing to do with this, Hensley says. There is no way this is wrong. You did it. Then the polygraph technician emerged and announced that actually he'd passed. He was clear. See, just try entrapment. Entrapment. Mm-hmm. By Christmas, five months after the murder, Hensley could see he was getting nowhere, which more than a few people in town told him was just plain stupid because everyone in Stephenville knew who did it. I'm like, who did it? Yeah, like... Like, who y'all think did it? Well, sorry, they saying everyone knew who did it, and they think it's, um... Oh, the... What's her name's boyfriend? Roy, yeah. Yeah, Cindy. Cindy's mm-hmm. boyfriend. Roy. In those days, Stephenville was a sleepy town of 13,000 or so, conservative and insu- insular. Dairies brought across the surrounding countryside. The smell of manure hung in the air some evenings. A fiberglass statue of a dairy cow dubbed moolah <laughs> dominated the town square beside the courthouse the county was dry you couldn't even buy beer mm-hmm. children's activities were defined by 4-h rodeo and on friday evenings in the fall high school football saturday nights teenagers cruised washington street between the dairy queens on each side of town <laughs> wow friends who did it together were known as drag buddies on Sundays, just about everything closed. Everyone was in church. If you were a man and drove anything other than a pickup, well, someone might glance at you funny. Outsiders got noticed. And everyone noticed Michael Woods. In a town where FFA jackets, cowboy hats, and close-cropped hair were common. This is giving me, like, home, t- home feels. Yeah, yeah <laughs> me too. The two Dairy Queens, I was like, oh, Uh wow, 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 wow. Susan's then-husband wore a leather jacket and engineer boots and had brown hair, shoulder-length hair, and a bad attitude. Oh, yeah, he was sticking out like a sore thumb. He drove a motorcycle, Mm. got into fistfights, and never seemed to have a steady job. Susan had been the breadwinner. Michael called himself a musician. (laughs) <laughs> Cindy called him a bum. I'm done. It was whispered around town that he dealt weed, something Michael denies ever doing. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Many days, Michael could be saying Michael could be seen lying shirtless in their yard, sometimes lifting barbells. <laughs> a Harley beside him in the driveway. He wasn't from Stephenville. No one had to ask to know that. Mm-hmm. No one ever saw him at the rodeo or a football game or church. Michael was born in Indianapolis and in second grade moved to El Paso. Mm -hmm. His mother was fleeing one of what he terms a series of volatile marriages and relationships. Michael later described his upbringing as erratic and abusive. Hmm. Money was money was scarce. They moved often, and one of his mother's carousel of boyfriends were was usually in the mix. Mm. 
Yes, they had carousel boyfriends. I can't. She liked to party and have kids. He ended up with seven siblings. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I skipped a sentence. She was a little hellion, is how he puts it. She liked to party and have kids. He ended up with seven siblings. My gosh. When he was 15, his mother remarried and the family moved to Virginia. It was then that Michael began leaving home for long periods. He had learned the guitar and loved it, playing Southern Rock, Marshall Tucker, Scanner. Come on, Marshall Tucker Band. Away from home, he played on street corners and at the Odd Club, mostly along the East Coast, wherever the mood took him. Mm-hmm. Sleeping on couches where he found them, one step from homelessness. It wasn't as rough as being at home, he remembers. When he was 20 or so, a friend in El Paso. Why do I keep saying El Paso? <laughs> El Paso. El Paso. When he was 20 or so. <laughs> 20 or so, <laughs> El Paso. <laughs> Just from country to posh in like a second. And this was tripping me up. <laughs> El Paso. El Paso. El Paso. I keep saying peso like money. Ooh, I don't know. You said pa and pay. El Paso. Paso. El Paso. 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 Okay. When he was 20 or so, a friend in El Paso was moving to Stephenville and asked him to drive a truck that a truck there. <laughs> Lord. A truck there. He arrived in small. T- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a truck there. I'm not a just truck struggling. There. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He arrived in small town Texas in the late 70s, and when the friend needed more help, stayed on. Mm, okay. Just a few years out of high school, at the time, Susan told friends she spotted him on the drag. Though Michael recalls they met when he was playing pinball in a convenience store and she walked in. If Michael presented as a bad boy, Susan was very much the good girl. Sweet, timid, close to her mother, naive. (laughs) Naive. (laughs) According to Cindy, who befriended her in the Stephenville High clarinet section. Hey! Come on, band! Bandy! Yes, come on. (laughs) <laughs> Susan hadn't dated in school. She didn't even go to her prom, but she thought Michael was adorable, especially his shoulder-length brown hair. She said he looked like rock star Bob Seger. Her friends didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it don't matter. I'm feeling it, uh, honey. This is my man. I thought I thought he was very immature, Cindy says. Susan was... <laughs> all- Susan- Not a fan. <laughs> Susan was already working long hours at a nursing home, and he always wanted to have fun and have a good time, she recalls. Mm. The only serious fight she and Susan ever had, Cindy said, was over Susan's decision to date him. Oof. That's rough. That's rough. When you don't like your friend's significant other or something, like, or you're just like, why are you dating this person? It is so awkward. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. When it came time for Michael to meet Susan's parents, he didn't exactly arrive in a blue blazer with a vase of day, day lilies. Mm-hmm. I showed up on her doorstep. It was about 90 degrees outside, he recalls. <laughs> I was wearing a pair of cutoffs and sandals and not much else. 
and her mother opened the door and about fell on the floor. How <laughs> disgusting. A man walking around with no shirt and short shorts. So right from the beginning, her family didn't care for me one bit. <laughs> when it came time, Joe Atkins, who died in 2015, didn't waste many words on him. He he had a, I think it was a, <laughs> I'm reading it how it's wrote. Right. A three fifty seven, but he showed me the pistol he had in his closet, Michael said. He said, if you ever hurt my daughter, I'm going to shoot you. Mm. Michael never found steady work in Stephenville. He insists that few businesses wanted to hire or retain anyone with long hair. He also admits that as a musician and a night owl, he chafed at nine to five jobs. Over the years, he says he worked in a hayfield at a Sonic... At an auto parts factory and for a place that made cattle feeders. I'm done with the Sonic. (laughs) I went there for four years. (laughs) (laughs) I just did whatever I could until they got tired of me or I got tired of them, he says. I had a bit of an attitude problem back then because when people would try and say stuff like, Hey, Furface, get over here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I would not react well to that. And in Stephenville, during that time period, big guys like to push their weight around And that didn't work with me. I figured if you're going to push me around, I'd just pop you in the mouth. I didn't get along real well. In 1980, Michael persuaded Susan to return with him to El Paso. Pass. El Paso. (laughs) Return with him to El Paso, where an uncle had promised him a job. Soon after arriving, they got married What she had said to me is, my parents are going to disown me if, you know, I'm living with a man out of wedlock. So, can we get married? Oh. Michael recalls. And I said, (laughs) well, okay. (laughs) I can take the day off tomorrow. I can't. They walked into a justice of the peace alone and came out married minutes later. Back in Stephenville, Susan's parents were aghast. The job, meanwhile, didn't pan out, and before long, Michael and Susan had to begin pawning their things. In a, oh. Yeah. In a letter to Cindy, Susan complained that she was subsiding on bacon bit sandwiches. Soon enough, they were back in Stephenville, but a pattern had been established. Michael detested the town and everything about it. Susan wanted to make him happy, but found it hard to be content elsewhere. At least once, they moved to Indianapolis to, near, to be near Michael's brother. Two or three times, they'd get settled in, get a place, get it fixed up, buy their appliances, recall Susan's friend Gloria Martin. Mike would get itchy feet. We're going, we're going. She'd quit her job, move away, sell all their stuff. Good Lord. Stay a month, starve to death, come back, and they'd start all over again. Oh, that's terrible. That is terrible. I would not want to live like that. No. Until 1985 or so, they shared rental houses with others. Then Susan found the bungalow on McNeil Street near Stevensville downtown. That's where Michael mostly hung around the house or sunned in the yard. He began acting out after a disagreement. A neighbor accused him of pouring sugar in her gas tank. Mm. He caught the eye of Stevensville police, who he claims would sometimes stop him for no reason. Friends rolled their eyes, wondering when his and Susan's relationship would end. Oh, Susan tried. Every day she would come home after her shift and make him dinner. 
often Cornish game hens, mm-hmm. but it wasn't working. The last straw, at least from Michael's perspective, was when he told her about his desire to begin flipping houses. Susan had had Susan, who had earned almost all their money, was wasn't keen to invest. Michael accused her of emasculating him. Finally, in the summer of 1986, a year before her death, he could take it no longer. He more or less gave her an ultimatum, Texas or me. Barbara Williams, a co-worker of Susan's, told detectives she chose Texas. Good for her. So Michael went to Indianapolis, <laughs> but after a series of talks and letters, agreed to return that winter for what both understood as their final shot at rec- reconciliation. Reconciliation, yeah. Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It didn't take. Mm. In February 1987, Michael departed for good, taking their car. He left behind a cassette tape recording, which he excoriated Susan for destroying their marriage. Years later, Roy and Cindy still marvel at the ferocity of Michael's feelings. It was just 30 minutes of what a bitch she was, Roy says, how it was all her fault. Her parents were horrible, Cindy remembers him saying. They never gave him a chance. Almost as bad, Michael had hidden handwritten notes with similar sentiments throughout the house in cabinets and coat pockets. Oh, that's awful. It is so honest, sad. Susan was still finding them weeks later. It left her deeply shaken. Cindy's mother begged her to move into their spare bedroom when she declined. Cindy slept on Susan's couch for a time. Roy nailed the window shut and lent her a pistol. Susan filed her divorce. Once once the shock of the tape and the notes passed, friends noticed that her attitude began to lighten. She bought a car and was discreetly trusted with J.C. Bauman. She was kind of like what you'd read in books, Roy says, a person who has turned a chapter. Hmm. As Gloria Martin puts it, she was the happiest I've seen her in a very long time. On Friday and on Friday in late July, Roy and Cindy took Susan to a carnival in nearby Heiko. Afterwards, they went... <gasps> Wait a minute. I'm sorry. You uh, been there? No, but it... um. It's named for its founder's hometown of Heiko in southwestern Kentucky. Huh. Yeah. So apparently there's a Heiko, Kentucky. But I've never heard of it. And Mm -mm. I don't know where it's at. Southwestern. I mean. It's in Kentucky. Heiko, Kentucky. Oh, it's like near Murray. It's in Callaway County. Oh, that's neat. That's crazy. That's cool. That's Look at so, that. Come on, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's insane. One Friday in late July, Roy and Cindy took Susan to a carnival in nearby Heiko. Afterward, they went to a Dairy Queen and ordered hot fudge sundaes. Mm. When they were done, Susan ordered a second one, something Cindy had never once seen her do. She was happy-go-lucky, Cindy says. Four nights later... Susan was found dead. Susan's father, Joe Atkins, disappeared into Ken Maltby's office almost every day in those first first weeks, arguing that Michael was behind his daughter's murder. It was hard to find anyone who disagreed. Transcriptions of several of Hensley's interviews still sit in the district attorney's files, and in every one, Hensley asks who could have done this. And in most every case, there's a version of the same reply. Michael Woods, duh. Mm. 
Everything goes back to Michael Woods, Hensley recalls, and every time I talked to Joe, it was just, no, Michael did it. After leaving Texas for Indiana, Michael lived quietly, sleeping in a tent he pitched inside a dilapidated house his brother had bought for a song. They spent every available hour remodeling it, eventually carving out four apartments, one of which Michael took. One day, he was standing outside when a pair of Indianapolis police officers drove up. He and his brother had been arguing with neighbors about a parking situation, and Michael agreed to go to the station house, believing that it was necessary to deal with another complaint. Once there, though, detectives began asking about his life in Texas, about Susan, and whether he had gone back. Just off-the-wall questions that didn't make any sense to me, he remembers. And when they stopped and said, well, you're lying, we know you killed her, she's dead, you killed her. Mm. This was how Michael learned of Susan's murder, he says. He rushed to the bathroom and vomited. Afterward, the grilling continued. They just said, well, you did it, we know you did it. Well, get you a mental hospital if you just submit to it, he recalls. And I'm like, dudes, I have nothing to do with this. When they asked him to sign a statement, Michael refused, demanded a lawyer, and left. He hadn't even begun to process his feelings when, within days, the harassment started, he says. Cops started acting in Indianapolis the way they'd been acting in Stephenville. Just pull over and talk to me for no reason. I got arrested a couple times for being drunk in public when I hadn't been drinking. They just let me go in the morning and say, oh, no, you're fine. There's no court. There's nothing. They just arrest me, throw me in the cell with a bunch of rough dudes, let me out the next morning. Mm-hmm. He vividly remembers the two officers who came from Texas, the initial investigator, Kim Maltby, and a Texas ranger. Michael was standing in his yard, so they pulled up and told me, get in the car, we're going to the airport, he recalls. Michael had begun carrying a gun, fearing just this kind of thing. When he declined to get in the car, they insisted, and he claims he drew back his shirt to reveal the three fifty seven Magnum jammed into his belt. I said, nope, we can have a gun battle right here. Go what? for it. See if, you, see if you clear leather. That's an old Texas term. Oof. A Stephen Cop with direct knowledge of the case tells me he doubts that this happened, but Michael maintains that it did. Oh, okay. So he... Okay, Michael. After the harassment in Stephenville, Michael was wary of Texas police, but he says this incident cemented a growing hostility. Mm. His lawyer advised against any cooperation, he says, to the point that Michael withheld potentially exculpatory information. Michael would eventually elicit a dozen statements from people who swore they had seen him in Indianapolis at around the time Susan was killed. The lawyer advised him to also keep these from police for the moment. If they were shared, he warned, the Texas cops would no doubt try to undermine the accounts. Hmm. What frustrated the Stevensville police most was their inability to secure Michael's fingerprints. Had the visiting Texans tried a gentle approach, they might have left with with them. Court records confirm that Michael would have had no problem handing them over as long as it occurred in Indiana. I volunteered to give them blood samples, hair samples, fingerprints, he recalls. They insisted it be done in Texas, where the cops have full reign. I felt like if I went to Texas, I'd for sure get shot and police would claim it was an escape attempt. Hensley badly needed those prints, 
and by this point, he had no other suspects. He was certain that Michael's prints would match those found beside Susan's body if only he could get them. In April 1988, nine months after Susan's murder, Hensley found himself squatting inside an unmarked police surveillance van in Indianapolis, peering at Michael's house via a periscope that jutted out the top of the vehicle. <laughs> Very inconspicuous. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like the mystery machine mm-hmm. or something. Okay. Scooby dooby doo. Where are you? We got some work to do now. <laughs> My gosh. One day he watched as Michael, his brother, and his sister in law began laying out items for what appeared to be a yard sale. Back in Stevensville, Susan's family was. Ma- family was making a big deal of the fact that Michael ha- had taken not only the couple's yellow Mustang, but also a fur coat and series of crystal figurines that they felt belonged to Susan. Scrunched inside the van, Hensley spied some of the figurines, which gave him an idea. If they could arrest Michael for the theft of the figurines, they could get his fingerprints. Yep. Hensley had a search warrant drawn up. He then accompanied a crew of Indianapolis officers who descended on the house. They tore it apart and took everything I owned, Michael says, with the the exception of my guitars and clothes on my back. Mm. They took my cassette tapes. They took my underwear. They took my clothing. They took everything that was mine. Then they found, after their exhaustive search, a marijuana roach in my sister-in-law's purse, so they arrested me and my brother for that roach. Dang. Put us in jail, let us out the next day, never went to court on it. No charges were pursued, but the arrest got Hensley what he wanted, the prince. Mm-hmm. On the flight back to Texas, he sensed the noose closing around Michael's neck. He began drawing up an extradition request. He wasn't at all prepared for the news he got once he returned to Stevensville and compared the prints. They didn't match, he says. Effing didn't match. I knew they wouldn't because I just don't feel like he's guilty. I haven't felt like he was guilty at all. Well, see, and I keep forgetting that this is like somebody's going to be, I didn't know if someone was going to be wrongfully convicted or, Mm -hmm. but like I knew they were going to have the wrong guy, but I keep forgetting. So then I'm going back and forth and I noticed that because I was like, yeah, mm mm-hmm. And then I was like, wow. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is the same guy. (laughs) We're just hearing from him and we're hearing from like the cop's point of view. Yeah. And I keep forgetting and I'm on like both people's (laughs) sides at one point. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, they just need to get that. Yeah, they can get them if they get that. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, this is not how it's supposed to be. He's so cute when he does that. But yeah, I've never, I've like, he's innocent. I don't think he's guilty. Yeah. Because Michael, this is, we're still talking about Cindy's boyfriend, right? No. Cindy's boyfriend's Roy. We're talking about Michael, Susan's ex-husband that left her, took the car. Oh, did all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There had to be an explanation, but Hensley couldn't think of one. In his bones, he knew that Michael had done this. Everyone in Stevensville did, but there seemed no way to tie him to the crime. In desperation, Hensley attended an FBI profiler's class in Labasas. Another attendee asked if he had considered the idea of autoeroticism. Maybe Susan had died during some kind of elaborate sex game. Hensley looked into it, but eventually dismissed the notion as far-fetched. 
When he mentioned this to a superior, he says the officer suggested using the theory as an excuse to close the case. Because uh, we're not trying to solve it. Right. Hensley, who felt intense loyalty to Susan's family, says he exploded in anger. If another officer hadn't stopped me in the hallway, I'd have killed the guy. Mm-hmm. Soon after, he was reassigned to patrol duty. A few years had passed since Susan's death, and the investigation was no longer being actively pursued. This thing haunted me for years, says Hensley, who, after re-signing from the Stephenville Force in 1993, went on to work for an arm of the United Nations at one point helping investigate atrocities after the war in Kosovo. Kosovo didn't haunt me. Susan did. I mean, I'm sorry, but every time I talked to Joe Atkins, my heart broke, and I'm a tough old cop. I mean, I thought I was. Mm. No one ever told Michael, much less announced publicly, that he had been all but eliminated as a suspect. For him, and for the people of Stephenville, nothing changed. Joe Atkins kept on as he had before, telling anyone who would listen that Michael was getting away with murder. Mm. Cindy and Roy felt the same way. It was just an article of faith for years. Michael Woods was a murderer, and the police department had somehow let him go. So even though the prints didn't match, right? They tested the yeah, prints. They, he, Hensley did. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eventually, the Atkinsons, unless they're saying, like, they lied about you know, the prints not matching if they did, but that would be dumb. That, yeah, or like something was messed up, like somehow he, he got away, but yeah. he did it, even though the prints at the scene did not match his yeah. fingerprints. Eventually, the Atkinsons took things into their own hands. Susan had a life in, a life insurance policy, and Michael was due a death benefit of 11000 or so. In 1989, two years after Susan's death, the family sued, claiming that Michael was responsible. He refused to return for the trial. The judge not only awarded the family the 11000 but he hit Michael with an additional judgment of a mind-boggling $700,000. Mm. Michael was told that as long as he stayed out of Texas, he could never be collected. It could never be collected. Oh. Okay. So he had to give his part of the insurance money to them and then he got a seven hundred thousand dollar fine so they won the wrongful death suit this Mm -hmm. is like with oj simpson oj simpson owes like um nicole simpson's family nicole brown's family um like oh like at least a million dollars but there's not a way for them to make them pay it Mm -hmm. you know like it's more of just like You won, but you may never get this money. Yeah. Yeah. So, in Indianapolis, Michael sank into a funk. It wasn't just his paranoia. paranoia. Almost every morning that this would be the day Texas police finally came for him. The fact is, he had never taken the prospect of divorce seriously. He still loved Susan. He felt certain she had still loved him. She'll probably date a couple of cowboys and remember why she loves me, he recalls thinking. So I thought we were going to get back together. At first, he tried to move on. He installed home burglar alarms and took a few courses at a technical college, but his heart wasn't in it. 
Slowly, he realized that nothing would ever be the same. What he wanted most was to be a musician, but his lawyer warned that if he traveled outside Indiana, his risk of arrest multiplied. Instead, he and his brother limited themselves to local gigs, mostly small clubs and private parties, billed as the Hamilton brothers named for their birth father. They'd split the $35 they made for each gig. The money never went far. Hmm. It only got worse when the Indianapolis paper ran an article about the case. After that, Michael says, I had people come to the stage and say, aren't you the guy that killed his wife? Dang. Kind of puts a damper on the rest of your evening when they do that. Over time, his funk deepened into depression. I was going to a therapist. I was on antidepressants, he says. He turned to recreational drugs, which didn't help. I was taking anything anybody offered me as a gig. And I mean anything. Get me out of this world. I drank like a fish. Nothing seemed to cheer me up. Or if it did, it wasn't for long. I was too far gone for th- for therapy to be much good for me. They said mm. that I had an identity crisis and needed to learn how to be without my wife, which at the time I wasn't, I wasn't me without her because I always figured we'll be back together. He prepared relentlessly for the life in prison he expected in a, I'm a small guy, he says, so I started working out like a madman. Like, imagine you're like, I'm going to go to jail for this. I know that I'm about to be in danger. Yeah, like, so I'm going to have to, like, do something so that I can protect myself. Oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine. Years went by. It never got much better. Susan's birthday was in April, and every spring, Michael's mood would darken, growing worse as summer dawned, then peaking around the anniversary of her death in July. He worked on construction and trained himself to be a carpenter. He dated some, but never found anyone he adored as he had Susan. By 2000 or so, he felt everything slipping. Music was the thing that he'd always loved most. He stopped practicing as much. He stopped writing songs. At his lowest point, Michael says he attempted suicide. Mm. I took a whole bottle of tranquilizers and figured I'll just go to sleep and not wake up. But where I did, but what I did was I slept for three days and I woke up and I was still depressed. Mm. Finally, in the summer of 2005 came a turning point. He was performing alongside his brother at a birthday party. The 18th anniversary of Susan's death was imminent. I got finished playing, he recalls, and I left the stage and I went around behind the house and I broke down and I was crying. The host and acquaintance of his named of his named Barbara Gary followed and asked why. He told her about about the murder, explained that it remained unsolved, and said everyone in Ship Stephenville blamed him for it. Gary thought this was terrible. She decided to try and help. Soon after, she spent, she sent an email to the Stephenville Police Department. By the early aughts, Stephenville had a backlog of three unsolved murders, including Susan's, and Donnie Hensley's pal Don Miller was asked to look into them. Bald and garrulous, Miller thought Susan's case was the most promising of the three, but he initially saw little he could do with it. DNA testing was now available, so he had sent the six cigarette butts found in Susan's living room in for testing, but the results had come back unidentified male, Hmm. 
which was little help without a suspect's DNA to compare it with. He was working one of the other cases in July of 2005 when he heard about Barbara Gary's email. When he phoned her, Gary said the situation was killing Michael and his family, and she wanted to know where the case stood, Miller recalls. If Michael truly wanted closure, he replied, he should talk to him. When Miller heard nothing for five months, he called back and this time managed to get Michael on the phone. Miller asked to come to Indianapolis to get his DNA. Michael was hesitant. He agreed at first and then waffled at one point canceling after Miller and his partner had already bought plane tickets. They decided to go anyway. Hmm. It was winter in Indiana, shivering in summer weight sports jackets. They drove to Michael's address and knocked on the door. He cracked the door open, and I told him who I was, and he said, Miller, I told you I wasn't going to cooperate, Miller says, and I just started talking. He explained how the cigarette butts were the only way to establish Michael's innocence, and if you don't give me your DNA... If you don't cooperate with me, then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to leave, and this case is going to go nowhere. You've got to help me. Mm. Eventually, Michael relented. There was just one problem. Neither Miller nor his partner had ever used a DNA kit. They read the instructions there on the front porch and managed to get it done. Unlike Hensley and everyone else he talked to in Stephenville, Miller wasn't wedded to the idea that Michael was the murderer. He, in fact, given that his fingerprints hadn't been at the scene, mm-hmm. he was confident he could clear him. I know that DNA is not going to match the cigarette butts. I know that for a fact, he says, but he needed to clear him anyway, because if and when he found another suspect, whoever it was might claim that Susan's death had been an accident during risky sex. Okay. He needed someone who could testify that she had no history of such behavior and Michael was the only one. Oh, okay, yeah. Miller turned to Texas, sent in the the samples, and as expected, they didn't match. So I called and said, Michael, you are 100% cleared from the case. Your fingerprints don't match. The DNA doesn't match. You are no longer a suspect. Michael began to cry. Then he said thank you and hung up. Mm. Clearing Michael was great for Michael, not so great for Miller, he was now out of suspects, and his only hope was the prints lifted from Susan's bathroom mirror and tub. In 1999, the FBI had unveiled an electronic national fingerprint database. A department could submit unidentified original prints and have them compared against thousands of others. But Miller's request to take the prints to Washington was denied, and he felt he couldn't risk mailing them. Mm-mm, I wouldn't risk it either. No, absolutely not. Then he heard that Texas Department of Public Safety had gained access to the FBI database. In May 2006, not really expecting that this newfangled technology would produce any any kind of breakthrough, Miller drove to Austin and handed the prints to a DPS officer. A few days later, the officer called back, Hey, we got a match on those prints, he said. Who'd they come back to, Miller asked. Joseph Scott Hatley. Never heard of him. The officer had no details, only that Hatley had been arrested in 1988 for a robbery in Nevada. Hmm. He called the Earth County Prosecutor John Terrell. Do we know a Joseph Scott Hatley, he asked. Yeah, Terrell said. Local kid, raped a girl. 
Grand jury declined an indict. He went on, I'll get the file for you. When Miller read the file, he was floored. The rape of a 16-year-old girl in 1988, a year after Susan's murder, sounded especially brutal. Hatley, he saw, came from a well-known Stephenville family. His late father, Levi, had operated a Texaco station in town, then a wholesale ice business, and later a diesel repair shop. His mother, a mom named Celia, was a homemaker. Hatley was the youngest of three children. On the face of it, the family lived a standard small-town Texas life. The Hatleys were hardworking, had had doting grandparents, and attended church every Sunday. Hatley's mother and sister still lived in Stevensville. At a glance, there was nothing trying him to Susan Woods, but Miller kept scanning the gruesome details of the yellowing report on the rape. The attack had happened in a roadside park south of town. At one point, after the girl had already been raped, she got up and ran. Hatley, she said, chased and caught her. He laid on top of me and told me if I didn't mind him, he would kill me. The girl Mm. recalled, the next words stopped Don Miller cold. Hatley, she said, told her he had done it before. Miller stared. He said, son of a, Mm -hmm. he did it. So... Mm. that's where I'm going to end okay on this murder and we'll finish it up in part two find the conclusion wow I was thinking they were going to be like it was Roy I was like "Mm." but no some guy that we haven't even heard of yet Mm -hmm. so now we'll have to figure out the connection between him and Susan Mm -hmm. well that was good. This is interesting. Interesting. Makes you want to come back for more. Yes. Yes. Well, you can email us at a million murders at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Yes. And then you can go to our Instagram at a million murders, see the people, places, and things that we're talking about each week. And you can go to our Facebook page and group, A Million Murders, and talk about anything you want, ask us questions, put in requests, whatever you'd like. And, you know, that's where the updates will be as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Alrighty. Well, I hope y'all all have a great weekend. Yes. And I'm just going to say thanks for tuning in. And we hope you come back for... A million more. Bye.